Let us pray. Our Almighty and most gracious Father, draw near to us this night. Enlighten our hearts and our minds. Grant to us your Spirit and renew us inwardly and outwardly. Apply your Word deeply to our hearts. And grant us, O Lord, that we might love you and that we might love one another. And in that, fulfill all that you have called us to do. All of this we do ask through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what is this night all about? I think that St. John has summed it up well for us. In verse 1 he said, Jesus having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. That's how other translations put it. And I do have a liking of that. Because it adds a sense to it of just the utter depth of Jesus' love. He loved them to the uttermost, to the fullest. In a complete and total way, He loved those of His who were in the world. And that is John's summary statement of all that follows on this last night of Jesus' life before His death and resurrection. He summarizes everything by simply saying, He loved them to the uttermost. All that He does leads up to that moment now on Good Friday where He will die for the sins of the world. And that dying for the world is His loving His own to the uttermost. In all of our readings this night, we've been given two great actions of Jesus. These actions tell us about the reality of His loving His own to the uttermost. And in that loving His own to the uttermost, He tells them the new commandment. Later on in chapter 13 at verse 34, He says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. These words are deep words. They're a deep commandment that never find their fulfillment, do they? They never find their completion within our lives. It's a never-ending act that's always going on and on and on. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Never does it end. Never does this command to love one another end. He gives us an impossible task in so many ways when He says this. But nonetheless, He commands us to do it. In that, He reveals the depths of our calling as Christians. He reveals to us the depth of the Christian life that He has called us into. Those words are the primary reason that this is called Maundy Thursday. You see, I avoided the joke about Maundy Thursday at the very beginning of my sermon and saved it for now. But no, Maundy Thursday. That's why it's called this New Commandment Thursday. We also sometimes call this day Holy Thursday, that Thursday of Holy Week. But this day especially gets named Maundy. 
Because it's the anglicized word for mandatum. And you can easily guess what familiar English word comes from mandatum. Our word mandate ultimately derives from that very word emphasizing the command, the calling, the demand that God has placed on us. For he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So really we could call this Mandate Thursday or Commandment Thursday. And yet Jesus calls it a new commandment, but it isn't really that new. It's really an old commandment to love one another. After all, it comes out of His very word that He gave to His people, the Israelites. Love your neighbor as yourself. For that was Jesus in the Old Testament speaking to His people, telling them what to do in the covenant. And within His own ministry, when He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He spoke of two, to love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. On this, the whole of the prophets, the whole of the law and the prophets lies. All of it is summed up in those two in those two words that are really about so much of the same thing, loving one another as Christ has loved us. And so it's an old commandment, and yet it's given a whole new level of meaning because of the work of Christ, because of His coming into this world. What it means for us to love one another as Christ has loved us takes on a whole new meaning from simply saying love your neighbor as yourself. That commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us is founded upon His very work, the work He came to do on our behalf. That work of bringing salvation to us, to bring us redemption, to bring us reconciliation with the Father by His removing our sins from before Him. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says. Just as I have loved you. That is the foundation. He is the foundation upon which everything else depends, upon which that second half Therefore, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And how does He love us? Well, that takes us right back to the very beginning of the chapter, to the uttermost. He loved to the uttermost, to the point of death, to the point of dying upon the cross, knowing what would come out of that death. As our author to the epistle to the Hebrews said, he despised the shame of the cross, knowing the joy at the end. He endured the shame of it, knowing the joy that would come out of the redemption. And so what are the two actions of Jesus that I want us to think about tonight that reveal his love to the uttermost prior to his going to the cross? There are two simple actions. One is what we just heard about here in the Gospel of Jesus simply washing His disciples' feet. And the other is what we heard about in our reading from St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. The establishing of the Lord's Supper and its meaning for us. Both of these events reveal to us the love of Christ toward His people. This uttermost kind of love. And in these we find the ultimate examples. The ultimate examples of that love brought forward to us. To bring us to the healing that we desperately need within. And so what happened when Jesus washed his disciples' feet? 
The timing of when this event happened, I'm not quite sure of during the supper. I think at times in the past I said it happened after He spoke the words of the Lord's Supper. Because that's how it occurs in the Gospel of Luke. St. Luke places it right after the words of institution. Or the arguing, I should say, not the washing of the feet. No one else mentions his washing of the feet, but John, I should say. But in the Gospel of St. Luke, there is bickering and arguing that he lists after the words of institution. And most everyone agrees that probably, in light of that arguing, bickering about who's the greatest, who is the most important, who should be before Jesus, who should sit closest to him, who is the most important of all of us, is probably in the midst of that bickering that he stood up to wash his disciples' feet. And so in my mind, since those words about that bickering happened right after the words of institution in Luke's Gospel, I got to thinking, oh, well, he must have washed their feet after the words of institution. But now, looking at it more deeply, more holy, I begin to realize that, oh, Luke may have just simply placed that event right after the words of institution in order to just simply juxtapose the infighting between the disciples with the gracious words of the Lord of giving them His body and His blood through the supper. Because he then goes on to talk about Peter and his falling away and his failing. Luke likes to place things topically around big ideas. He doesn't always report things in a chronological order, whereas the other two synoptics, Matthew and Mark, tend to put things in a bit more of a chronological order without much rearranging. And so, however it happens, this washing of the feet, though, is intimately connected to that arguing between the disciples. And so what does Jesus do in light of the disciples arguing with each other? He gets up and He assumes the role of the lowest of the low servants. He assumes the role of washing His disciples' feet, of doing the very thing that should have already been done by one of them to everyone else. He strips off His outer garments and ties a towel around His waist and goes about washing His disciples' feet, cleansing their feet. But then when he reached Peter, Peter doesn't want him to. He is shocked. He is surprised to see his Lord demeaning himself in such a way. Because it was a demeaning moment for Jesus. He had to bow down and clean his disciples' feet. Peter being Peter doesn't understand. First he says, you can't ever wash me. And Jesus tells him, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. So then Peter flings to the opposite side of it. The other extreme will... Completely wash me. Pour all the water over me and clean me. My head and my hands and my whole body as well. Clean all of me. But here, Jesus points him, I think, back to a comfort that we have in baptism. He who is already washed needs only to wash his feet. He is completely clean except for his feet. And some see in that a picture of that traveling through this struggle of the world. Living In that dichotomy, in that struggle of the sinner and the saint, the sinner and the justified one, that we still sin, that we still struggle, that we still stumble through this world, and therefore we get dirty, though we have been fully cleansed by baptism. And we turn continually in confession. We turn in repentance from those things that we have done in order to be cleaned, to be fully cleansed, to embrace that cleansing that has been given to us through our baptisms. And so the disciples are given a picture of baptism even in the midst of this foot washing. 
that those who have already been cleaned do not need to fully be cleaned again. There is no need to go back to that original cleansing. Remember that Christ has taken hold of you and laid hold of you. And all that needs to be done is for your feet to be washed. And He is ready and willing and able to do that. As you confess your sins, He removes those sins once more from you. He brings that forgiveness, that reconciliation back upon you, bringing it forward from the cross into your very heart, into your very life. He renews you by cleansing you. And when He had finished all of that, He says, do you, not under, do you understand what has happened here? His washing of their feet. I am your teacher and Lord, but yet I have become the lowest of the low servants to wash your feet. Therefore, care for one another and wash one another's feet, which finds its fulfillment in those final words in verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. That the washing of the feet is a picture, is a symbol, is an example of that loving one another. Of giving your all to the other, of humbling yourself before your neighbor, humbling yourself before all the people of God to become a servant to all. That is the calling that Christ has placed on us in this Christian life. To serve one another. Humble yourself before all others and follow Him and serve Christ and serve His people that He has served by loving us to the uttermost. And so with that washing of His disciples' feet, He moves on through this evening, the disciples being silenced, being left in awe, being left confused at what this act fully means. And so they continue forward through this supper of the Passover, And here we move toward the end. Toward the end of that supper when they're enjoying the bread and the cups of wine. There at the end, recalling the great acts of God that we heard about in Exodus 12. That establishing of the original Passover meal. There in Egypt, as they are looking forward to God bringing them out and God bringing that last curse upon the people of Egypt for the Pharaoh's refusal to let God's people go. And He tells them to slaughter a lamb and to take its blood that you have drained out of it and paint it over your doors so that when the destroying angel, when the angel comes through, he will see that blood and see that you are one who trusts in God and He will pass over your house. Hence, Passover. He will pass over the people who have that blood over their doors. And they will be saved. They will be redeemed. And so they were ready to move, They were ready to leave. They were ready to escape from Egypt. For this last curse was the greatest of all curses. The firstborn of Egypt to die, both man and beast. And when that happened, Pharaoh was done. He sent them away. He sent them out of Egypt because of the Lord's great power. The Lord overcoming all of Egypt's gods. The Lord even throwing down Pharaoh and his family by slaying the firstborn of man and beast. There in that Passover meal, they were remembering it. They were recalling it in such a way that it is as though they are the very ones who are experiencing that very first exodus. But that word remembrance, as they recall and remember those events, it is as though they are the generation that came out of Egypt. That it is them who are escaping from Egypt by God's redemption. But then Jesus shifts the tone. He shifts everything. By taking a mere piece of bread, blessing it and breaking it before their eyes and saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
As they sit there confused that the entire liturgy of the Passover has suddenly been changed, not understanding or comprehending fully what Christ is doing in that moment, He takes the cup of wine and He says, this is the new covenant in My blood. Drink it. For My blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of Me. Again, that word remembrance occurring there, telling all of us that as we participate, as we remember, it is as though that very first supper, that moment of Christ giving His life upon the cross is being carried forward to us and applied to us and planted deep within us. But even more so as He says, this is My body, this is My blood. He's identifying Himself and pouring Himself out to us through that bread and that wine. It is a mystery of mysteries. But that's what our colleague said. In this mystery, you have promised us eternal life. You have given us that pledge of eternal life. It is a mystery. Not in our modern day concept of mysteries, of how we will sit there and try to figure something out. We have the detective story where there's all kinds of things that he's trying to put together. He's finding clues and hints, and he figures it out, the detective. He susses everything out and comes to a conclusion. That is not how mystery works in the Bible. It is not God's people figuring out what God is going to do. Mystery in the Bible is something that God has hidden. And then suddenly He lays it bare before His people. He opens our eyes. He causes us to see, to receive, to be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the mystery of God is revealed to us. Paul speaks of it so freely, especially in his letter to the Ephesians. He speaks of the mystery of Christ. That the Gentiles would be united to the Jews. That God would make one people. That He would renew the whole world by creating one new man out of all the disparate peoples of the earth through Christ Himself. That He becomes the cornerstone that unites everything together. A mystery that could only be revealed by God Himself. And only after His revelation of that mystery can you see that He left clues everywhere. The calling of the Gentiles forward throughout the Old Testament. Suddenly our eyes are open to suddenly see all that the Spirit has been accomplishing in God's people, what He has been revealing throughout all the ages. And here at this Last Supper, the Eucharist, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, He comes and reveals a mystery to us that we become partakers of Christ. That through this bread and this wine, He gives Himself to us and feeds us mysteriously and spiritually through this bread and this wine. But it's not spiritual in this ethereal and unreal way. Again, a modern accident of terminology that our word spiritual tends to mean ghostly, not really real. Ethereal, untouchable, unseeable, unknowable. Spiritual in Scripture means full of the Holy Spirit, full of new life, full of the renewal and life of God Himself. For in 1 Corinthians 15, how does Paul describe Jesus' body. He describes it as a spiritual body. A new body, a real body. One that has more substance, more to it than just our old physical bodies. These physical bodies that wear out. Jesus now has a true spiritual body. One that is physical and yet filled with the Holy Spirit that is made new and glorified and made eternal to never die again. And that is the sense of spiritual that I use this night. The sense of Jesus being a true spiritual body. He is no longer in natural, ordinary human flesh. He has been raised up into a new kind of life, and in that raising up into new life, 
He gives that life to us by feeding us with Himself. By promising that as we receive this bread and receive this wine, it becomes a partaking of His very body. It becomes a partaking of His very blood. For again, that's what St. Paul says just a little bit earlier in his letter, in his epistle to the Corinthians there. There in chapter 10, he says, Is not the cup of blessing a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the very body of Christ. That through that bread and that wine, we mysteriously come to participate in Christ as He comes to unite Himself to us more deeply and to make us His own. And so this night, He shows us His love to the uttermost for even by washing our feet, by washing His disciples' feet and calling us to remember that event and to apply it to that reality of as He has loved His people, we are to love one another. And He's given us His supper in order to renew us, to fill us up with His very presence, to make us one with Himself. He comes and visits us and feeds us. He makes Himself known in us. And it is a mystery that only the eyes of faith can see. In every way, that bread and that wine seem to be ordinary bread and wine, but yet through the power of the Spirit and the words of Christ Himself, it becomes for us that body and that blood to make us new, to enable us now to know that love to the uttermost in our lives, to know that He has loved us to the uttermost by dying upon the cross and being raised into new life, and now He comes and feeds us with Himself to make us His own. That is the work of Christ for us. The love that He gives us to the uttermost, not only dying and rising again on our behalf, but continually feeding us with Himself to make us new, to make us one with Him, to bring us deeply into that union that we would know that pledge of eternal life. That He feeds us with His body and blood and He cleanses us day in and day out. And now He enables us through those events that cleansing and that feeding to begin walking that path of love to the uttermost for one another. Because that's what he means when he says, just as I have loved you, I have loved you to the uttermost. I have laid down my life for you. And in my laying down of my life, I give you new life and therefore you are to love one another in the same way. To love one another to the uttermost. It's an exciting call for us, but yet a scary call for who is able to ever fulfill anything like that but Christ alone. And it is true, it is Christ alone who fulfills the reality of loving one another. But He enables us, He works in us, He draws us up to Himself, and He helps us to push forward little by little, learning how to love one another, how to care for one another, how to be there with one another in the midst of all that we need. He renews us and enables us and calls us forward more and more. Allowing us and letting us confess where we fail before He knows we are weak. He knows that we are but weak human beings who still stumble and fall by the flesh. And though that commandment to love one another will never ever be fulfilled by any one of us in this life, He fulfills it in us by working through us, by bringing His love to the uttermost for you, and extending it out of you to those around you. And He does that through washing, 
through cleansing, through feeding us. And so let us this night stand in awe of the work of Christ on our behalf and how he brings that love of his that is to the uttermost into our very hearts, into our very lives. And may we be changed by that. And may we just sit in awe of what Christ has done for us in these coming days. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.